I'm Stephanie Luo. Welcome to my podcast, Surface Time, aka Confessions of a Diving Junkie, where I chit chat with people who are like me, scuba diver, and chronic addicts to being underwater. During the surface time today, I caught up with Tony Wu, an award-winning wildlife photographer with a long list of accolades. He has dedicated his life to documenting wildlife, big and small, on land and on the water. A remarkable gentleman who wears his heart on his sleeves and is motivated by his curiosity in pursuit of new discoveries, like the courtship and the spawning of cardinal fish, and the importance of whale poop to our ecosystem. Hi, Tony. Stephanie. Thank you for coming to Service Time. Tony, you've been a scuba diver and a professional photographer. I would like to learn more about what you have been doing. Let's start with this question. Where was your last memorable dive? Last memorable dive? Well, two days ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, every dive is, is memorable. Pretty much when I go into the water, I'm usually looking for specific subjects or specific events. A couple of days ago, I was in the water near where I live just to test some equipment and to check out my gear before I go on an extended trip. I do this relatively often, making sure everything works and also testing new ideas and new gear that I've made or acquired. I've managed to photograph a tiny little juvenile fish. It's about five millimeters, give or take. It's called in Japanese, a dango wolf. In English, lump sucker. The Binobial name is Yu Microtremus Awai. They're really, really cute and they're very popular in Japan. They're usually very skittish. They move around a lot. You can understand because they're little and they can be eaten by other things. This one was very cooperative and we spent probably 20 minutes or so together. And I got to test gear and I got a nice photo. The babies appear February-ish through April-ish, depending on what part of the country you're in. And uh, they then grow up and get a little bit bigger. They're the most cute when they're teeny tiny little things. That's the last time I was in the water. You, you say that you're going on to an extended trip to play with humpbacks or uh, many other things. Well, not actually, the world has gone a little bit nuts since 2020. I have not been traveling overseas. Partially that was because of global circumstances, but also because I kind of figured in January 2020, I knew that there was a very big chance the situation was going to be very bad. I knew because of general biology knowledge, um, having lived through SARS, the first version, and also from science friends who were all very concerned. So I decided in about mid-January that chances were better than even that the world would be in a very bad place for a while. I basically canceled all of my overseas plans for 2020 and reformulated a strategy to be inside Japan in case I could travel inside Japan. As it turned out, travel within Japan has not been terribly restricted. That was fortunate for me. But I haven't been overseas since November 2019. This is the, the longest time I've spent in a single country since I think I was 15 years old. Wow. What has been happening in the last two years? Well, I think for a lot of people, diving means traveling, going to faraway exotic places. That's part of the, the fun of it. I understand that. In my case, I enjoyed doing that and learning about new countries and new places and visiting friends in other places. 
And I spent a great deal of time, probably more than 10 years, concentrating upon whales. And my love for the ocean existed long before that. Basically, I get excited about anything, actually any animal, any living thing, even on land, I go crazy over teeny tiny little things. It's kind of stupid how crazy I go. But in the ocean, I have photographed all sorts of stuff. In terms of media attention, people tend to gravitate toward, say, charismatic animals. More people will notice a humpback whale breaching than they will a tiny five millimeter, you know, lump sucker sitting on a piece of seaweed. So the change in 2020 was not that big a deal for me, actually. My approach is it's best to recognize that some, your circumstances are going to change and adapt proactively. Figure things out before they happen to you and then make the changes first so that you're not behind the eight ball and wondering what to do and upset and disappointed and stuff like that. Essentially, I knew that the whales would not happen for me starting in, in January, February, 2020. I knew that the chances were very low. I just switched my priorities and I have been concentrating on all sorts of little things and phenomenon that happen all around the ocean in Japan that are not well-documented. Maybe they don't get as much interest as whales would, but it doesn't matter. I love the ocean. I photograph just because I love these animals. I study them. I want to figure out what makes a specific animal unique, what it is, what makes it different from everything else. Why should I care about this specific species? And then how do I show that in a way that makes people at least take notice and go, whoa, that's really whatever, cute, dramatic, amazing, whatever that animal embodies. It is that there are species that you hoped that you would encounter in the Japanese mm -hmm. water. What are those ones that you've come across in the last uh, two years? For example, the one that I just told you about, the lump suckers, I've known about them for decades. But I've never had the time to go look for them, nor did I have the equipment or the skills because it's, it's cold water. Depending on where you are, we're talking about between 5 degrees Celsius and 15 degrees Celsius. Thereabouts. It's colder than I would normally be diving in, like in tropical waters, where I'd be freezing at 27 degrees. So that required having different equipment and learning how to use it and being comfortable in it. Taking photographs, you have to be proficient. You can't just plummet down with your gear and land on top of everything and destroy everything and then expect to take photographs. You got to be really good at, at what you're doing. So that took a little bit of time getting used to and help from friends here who gave me advice, helped me get the right things, coach me and, and tell me what to do, what not to do. If you're in cold water and you got 20 kilos of, of gear on plus five kilos of camera stuff and it's freezing cold and you try to take a picture of a tiny three to five millimeter fish that's moving around on seaweed while the current is moving. It's tough. You really got to be in control. It doesn't always work. That was one example. There have been other species like black spotted cardinal fish. There's a moment when the female extrudes the eggs, the male fertilizes, and the male takes the eggs into its mouth. There's that split second photographing that. And the whole process is incredibly beautiful to watch. People don't think of fish as demonstrating any sort of what we might say mammalian or human emotions, but you can see moments when there is like possessiveness, there is anger, there's irritation, there's possibly jealousy, there's protectiveness, there's tenderness. All of these things come out if you spend time watching them. Um, I photographed seahorses giving birth and uh, mating and the competition. In the case of seahorses, the females compete for the male, not the males compete for the female because the males are the ones that carry the babies. So watching the females try to pull the male attention away and the male being confused and not knowing which way to go, it's pretty funny if you know what's going on. So 
these are the types of things that require you spend time studying, understanding what is known about specific animals. And, and a lot of times there's nothing known or very little known. Also uh, talking with people on the ground who have spent time with whatever animal or animals or environment, and then spending the time to observe very carefully, take notes, think about what's going on. And sometimes it, it takes a little while to figure out what's going on. With more time, with more practice, it, it gets easier and easier. It, it's sort of a sixth sense that you get just from spending enough time with the animals. I want to ask you a bit more about the cardinal fish, because what you say earlier that you, you kind of know things will happen so that you get yourself prepared in the moment. So it's, it's almost like saying that you're at the right place at the right time is a bit of understatement because there's a lot of things that, that you have to actually prepare in advance so that you can be at the right place at the right time. And so with that cardinal fish, particularly, it must have taken you some time to really study, understand them and knowing when's the mating season. It's not a random thing that, oh, I show up when they were mating, then I got my camera and capture. It definitely comes with a lot of preparation, right? Yes, yes and no. I'll give you two examples. In the case of the cardinal fish, I had seen the photos other people have taken with point and shoot cameras and from the diving publications here in Japan and from friends, 10, 15, 20 years, something like that. So I kind of knew that the species did this in waters that are accessible to, to people, but I never knew anything more than that. When I started realizing, okay, I'm going to spend more time looking at these things in Japan, I reached out to the, the dive guide who at least had photographed the moment reasonably well and had spent several years observing them. I contacted him and asked a lot of questions. I always ask a lot of questions. I'm really well known in Japan for that. And people are really good about answering. They know that I ask a lot of questions because the intent is eventually to get there and try to document as well as I can. So when I reached out to this person, he, he responded quite quickly and we probably communicated over about 18 months with something like on that order of magnitude. And then there is a season. I missed it first year because I was busy with other things. And then the second time that season came around, I specifically made time. So I prioritized that event, contacted him, stayed in touch for the three or four months uh, in between. And then it all comes down to is like taking a chance because even though the season, you don't necessarily know it's going to happen on this day or that day or whatever. I allocated five days. That's all I had, five days. And I always have to kind of accept the possibility that of total failure it happens, right? So you just kind of go with the mindset that, okay, I've prepared as best as I can, ask as many questions as I can. I read as many scientific papers as I can. I've thought about it in my head. I've planned the equipment. I know exactly how I want to photograph it if I'm lucky enough to see it. But... It can also not happen or conditions can be wrong or I can screw something up. All those things can happen. So you got to be prepared for both. And fortunately for that one, I photographed it on the first day, the first time we tried. Scale of one to 10, I'd say in my own mind, I got about a six and a half. It was already better than what I'd seen otherwise. Over the course of the next few days, I spent you know, probably four to five hours a day in the water with these fish, watching them and watching how they prepared their body language, the, the relationship between the male and the females. And I got better at reading the timing. By the end of the stay, on the fifth day, I could tell you these two fish are going to do something soon. I couldn't tell you five minutes or 10 minutes, maybe 15, but it was going to be in that time frame. So then I knew when to wait and to watch. And on the last dive, I, I totally nailed it, 10 out of 10. 
I'm giving you an example when it goes well. <laughs> I don't want to mislead you. Then the second example is like last year I, I went to a place that I was targeting a specific thing, but it was the first time I'd been there. It's the first time I dived with this person there. So we went into the water <clears throat> and he took me down to about 20, 25 meters, but I ended up seeing something that, that kept me there longer than we had planned. So I had a lot of off-gassing to do. By the time I came up, it was probably not going to be a good idea to do a second deep dive. So we went to a place where it was a shallow, small, enclosed bay with very, very murky. I mean, you could maybe see two meters ahead of you if you really squinted and strained. We were going to go to a maximum depth of maybe five meters or so. It was like an extended safety stop. And he wanted to show me this tiny little fish. So I was prepared with a lens appropriate for a fish that's maybe four or five centimeters or so. And as we're going along, we saw this gigantic starfish about 40 to 50 centimeters, at least 10 times the size of what I was targeting. And it was on the, the bottom, bright orange, and it was daytime. He wrote on his slate for me that this is very unusual. He said he would come back and check. So we found the place with the fish he wanted to show me. I sat there. He went back to check, and this starfish started to spawn. Came back and grabbed me, and I went back over there. So I'm stuck with a lens that's absolutely the wrong lens um, in really murky water with a gigantic starfish that's spawning, and it's just spectacular. I could barely see it, though, because of all the murk in the water. And definitely with the lens, I have to be a meter, a meter and a half away in order to fit it all in. For anybody who's photographs underwater, it'd be obvious that, well, that's just a lost cause. I sat there, like, scratching my head and being very frustrated. And then I worked out a way to improvise with the equipment I had. I figured a way to, to light the, the situation and make the best of the circumstances that I had. And I got these amazing photos of starfish spawning that totally unplanned, totally unresearched, totally caught off guard, all the wrong equipment. Everything was wrong. But they turn out to be some of the best photos I've ever taken. It happens both ways. And, but I will say that in those circumstances, when you get totally caught off guard, unprepared, having been prepared so many times before helps a lot in terms of like improvising at the last second and figuring out what to do when you only have, you know, a minute or two or whatever it is to figure it out as opposed to planning for weeks. You know, if you haven't done the planning before, if you haven't thought about things, other things before and done the quality thinking and the planning and the experimentation, testing equipment and trial and error, all that before, then you won't be able to figure out what to do on the spot. So they're kind of related. Both things happen. And then there's also the third case when you go and you're totally prepared and everything's right. You've got everything right and you totally fail, which I've done so many times I lost count. They say the beauty of philosophy in life is it's a reflection of what life is above water as well. Um, exactly. It's more of how do you seize the moment, living the present. When you do capture the photograph that as a photographer, you literally document that moment in life. And I have to ask you this question because your, your diehard fan, Hester, she'll unfriend me if I don't ask. She told me that you, you actually did chase whale poo. To catch yeah. a photo, what's the story behind it? Well, let me start with poop in general. No matter what language, what country, whatever you're in, if you say the word poop or the equivalent, people giggle and laugh, especially kids. Because if you have one of two choices, you can be disgusted or you can laugh. And most people laugh. Now, it 
in terms of biology in general and science of, or the study of living things, feces is actually quite important. It's common to lots of study. When tracking an animal, you're trying to figure out what it does. All animals have to eat and they have to poop. And if you know what they poop, you kind of have an idea of what they eat. And if you know that, then you get an insight into how they live or what their niche is in the environment. Oh, that's very important to understand. So long before I was dealing with whales, I was dealing with other animals as well, oftentimes on land and in the water. Looking at the poop serves a purpose. For people who aren't into studying animals, maybe it's a silly thing or it's a stupid thing or it's a disgusting thing, whatever people think. But in terms of the study of animals, in terms of biology, in terms of understanding environment, it's very, very important. It's a serious issue. When I started working with whales, I noticed that sometimes I would get pooped on and it's big. At first, I totally ignored it because it was just in the way. And then sometime, I think around 2012, a sperm whale did a humongous poop in front of me. And I just figured this cloud is so big that I can't even see past it. So I photographed it. And just as the whale was coming out of the cloud and I thought to myself, Hey, these whales hunt squid, squids, ink. Maybe this is stupid, but maybe they're using this to cover their own roots of escape because whales, as big as they are, are actually quite uh, shy in the water or it can be not always, but can be. I sent the photo to an author that I knew who wrote about whales and asked the question, is this even possible? And he sent me a research paper suggested similar for, for different species. I thought, Hey, this is pretty interesting. So I started photographing more of the poop and I started paying attention to when they do it and why they do it. And, and they being different species of whales. Before you know it, I had accumulated a collection of whale poop photos, mostly because I was just curious. I just wanted to know what's going on. And also inside the poop, when I dug through it and stuff, you could see things that hinted to their food. Like blue whales, you see the neon orange, which is the coloration from the krill. Sperm whales, it's dark ink, probably just just the way squid turns out when it's pooped out. With humpbacks, sometimes it was like runny and sometimes it was very solid. And with the babies, you could see pieces of their baleen that they probably had fallen out when they were swallowing, kind of like our baby teeth fall out and they probably swallowed it and pooped it back out. So these were all clues into their lives. Somewhere maybe 2014-ish, I, I don't, some scientists from the U.S. contacted me because he was writing about research that he and some colleagues were doing in terms of understanding how the whales contribute to the carbon cycle. For example, sperm whales will go down deep and they'll eat food down deep, bring, come back up and they poop at the surface. And that poop is rich in iron and other nutrients, which then kicks off phytoplankton blooms and phytoplankton blooms then kick off the entire food web, including absorption of, of carbon. So they were doing calculations as estimates as to how important this was into to the environment and he needed illustrations. And it turns out the person with the most amount of illustrations was me. So we struck up friendship <laughs> and I've been cooperating ever since the poop part of the whale story turned out to be much more important than I realized when I, I first started paying attention. That happens often. You start get curious about something, you start documenting, start noticing, taking notes, trading information. And then you, at one point you realize, wait a minute, this is really, really important. If you get in front of a bunch of kids in any country and you start showing pictures of poop and talking about poop, you are friends for life instantly. They will listen to anything you say. 
it's the best door opener. What did they expect that you get somebody serious, an adult standing up in front of the bunch of five or six year old kids, another adult. Oh God. And you start, you introduce yourself and then you say, you do a few serious things and then you go, and this is a photo of a whale poopy. I mean, giggles all around. And then the next thing you know, they're really interested and you can really then get some serious points across in an entertaining way that they don't forget. I know because I meet some of these kids years later and they still remember what I said. It's, it's not only is it important to the environment, but it, I think it's the art of communication. You've got to make use of things that are, are silly or things that other people don't necessarily touch because it's not what you do in polite society, but it can be very effective. And, and I found that to be the case with particularly whale feces because they're so big. To a typical six-year-old kid, it's just hysterical. This huge animal <laughs> pooping all over you and you swam through it. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> yeah. And then you say, just make sure you don't swallow. And they go, oh. you know. I think that the serious note that comes with it is the demonstration of the importance of those species being in the ocean because it's one place on the planet to offset carbon emission. Their thesis actually is to make a contribution to the, the entire cycle of the ecosystem because yeah. then uh, other species can draw the nutrients out of it as well. So it's not just a, a waste completely. But I love the fact that because the subject is so commonly perceived as some kind of a vulgar word, yeah. but then when you talk to the kid, you share with them and then they giggle. I do want to ask you a question about whales and since you've studied them quite a lot. Is this true that they have love songs and, and the love songs like a top of the chart and then change in seasons? It's difficult to give you a one word answer. I think most people are talking about humpback whales, but they sing and serenade each other. It's pure BS. Obviously there's clearly some purpose for their making sounds that we call song that have structure and that they do change over time. What that purpose is specifically like the mechanics and how it exactly works. We don't know. Nobody knows. And that's the only honest answer anybody can give. If anybody tells you differently, they're deluding themselves or they're misleading you. Within that general understanding, it's obvious that um, it is, if not only, it's, it's primarily, but I think it's only the males in case of backs that are seen, but it has something to do with the role of a male. Is it necessarily serenading a female? No, I don't think so. Because this is a mistake that people make all the time. Humans judge things based on their own feelings, emotions, experience, which you have to have some basis for making judgments. So totally understandable. But that when you place your own framework on somebody else or some other thing, you risk having complete misunderstanding. And you can look through life and see so many examples of this. My personal view is that could it serve a similar purpose for the reproduction process? Maybe, maybe. Another way to look at it is we know about the sea in the reproductive grounds because the reproductive grounds are the most hospitable to humans, warm water. We have in recent years learned that they also make similar sounds, if not the same sounds in the inhospitable waters to humans. But that blows a hole in that story right away if people would pay attention, but a lot of people aren't paying attention to that. It's more complex than our pop culture 
view of it. I think it's fair to say it's some sort of intelligent communication. What specifically that intelligent communication is, it's hard to say at this point. We, we need to avoid or try to avoid making judgments and statements based on our own prejudices and, and experiences, which is very difficult to do. I think um, it's also part of the human nature, understand, because um, when we look at something, if we don't fully understand, we would, we still try to give meaning to yes, to yes. that experience and, yes. and some form of narratives to go sure. with it. Like you say, most of the time, this has just become a very subjective interpretation of a situation. We do need to get ourselves away from it because uh, we're dealing with a wild life where mm -hmm. we don't have common language. Having said that, there is also some kind of bonding, some kind of communications. I'm sure that you've had countless en encounters of, say, humpback whales as you go swimming with them, and then you probably recognize them. And my question to you is then, have you made friends with any of them? And what are your encounters like with them? Again, yet, yes and no. In, say, a given season, there have been times when you've had repeated encounters with the same animal or animals. And it's very clear that the relationship evolves over time, like from natural, you know, wariness or, or just the natural caution any living creature would have towards something new to being totally at ease by the end of however many times we, we've met. To give you a specific example, like 2011, there was a calf that was attacked by probably a group of marine mammals. But anyways, it was injured very, very uh, badly, and it was a very young calf. The first time we saw it, it, its mother was like frantic, of course, and the baby was hiding and scared. We didn't bother it much, just saw it take off. I met it 50 times over the course of the season. Each time it was growing, it was healing, and each time it grew more familiar because there's a way you approach other living creatures and there's a way that you don't approach. And giving time, giving the animals their space to get to relax, to feel comfortable, to feel safe, all of that stuff. And over time, by the end, they would just come up and greet, greet me. There's no hesitation whatsoever. If you just took the first time and the last time, you wouldn't even know they were the same entities. The key, of course, was having the adult female, the mother, comfortable. Babies are babies, so they'll get through whatever. The adult female was very comfortable. I, I would float right up to her, and she was very comfortable by the end. Three years later, in very bad visibility, come across this whale, and the first time you get into the water, you tend stay a certain distance away and generally you give the animals time to acclimate it just felt like this animal was very very comfortable and within the first five ten minutes we were really really close to the animal and i felt that there was no tension no anxiety whatever and the people the two people who were with me had a wonderful time just photographing watching and stuff and she didn't move at all got out of the water and i thought god she feels so familiar and then it took me four or five days before I had enough time and I searched through my photo archives and I found that female by looking at the markings. It was that mother again. And she had a baby girl. The first time was a baby boy, this time was a baby girl. I met her several times again after that, during that same season. She knew, I think she knew. And once I knew it was her, then I knew how to approach and she would let us come 
close every single time. I'm pretty sure there's enough going on up here intelligence-wise that they perceive more than I think most humans would give them credit for. How much they perceive, I can't really speculate too much, but I can tell you that that's not the only time that I've had animals recognize and completely alter behavior based on who's in the water. So I will just say I treat every animal as I would people. If the person is giving me vibes that they're comfortable and they're chilled and they're friendly, then I react one way. If a person is giving me vibes that they're really on edge, something's wrong, they're aggressive, whatever, I react another way. And it's the same with the animals. If they tell you that they're not comfortable, then you leave that alone. Whatever the reason is, they're not comfortable. That's all you need to know. You don't need to know the reason. If they're comfortable, then maybe there's a chance to interact. I haven't had such in-depth experience, but my closest encounter was to swim with whale sharks in Donsol many years ago. And in season, like hundreds of people on the surface. The only way for me to have that close encounter is to duck dive down. So I held my breath and went straight down. I was just really swimming really hard next to it. At one point, I was four meter down there holding my breath. That one minute of my life felt like eternity because I, I had eye contact with uh, the whale shark. And then I got tired and had sinus problems. If I didn't have sinus problem i may stay with the shark and i'm curious about that connection because i think from neuroscience and heart science perspective we do project electromagnetic fields and that get to be received and i think with animals they're even a humpback the way they 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 communicate through sonar and all this is all about the energy vibes at some level they recall the encounter of you and they felt comfortable the water behaviors. That's incredible. Your story is a gift to the world and for the future generation. This is the way I look at it. The animals have, have taught me these things, like you mentioned. There is very clearly a different reaction to different people. It's crystal clear. In the beginning, I thought that was chance. And so there's probably a certain amount of chance and stuff, but you get the same animal and you put two different people in the water and it reacts at the same time differently to the people. Why should that be the case? It's something that is not quantifiable. You can't easily put your finger on it. The whales are the easiest to describe because they're so big and, and they're so easy to recognize, you know, when they're comfortable when they're not. I'm sure you have met people that you're instantly comfortable with. And you have met people that you're instantly never going to be comfortable with. It's not anything that they say or do or wear or whatever. It's the sum total of everything that you cannot describe. And that exists. I have a lot of scientist friends who, you know, tisk, tisk, tisk. You know, and that's fine. <laughs> I, I, I value all the science incredibly. But I also know that there's more than just numbers and double-blind studies. This is the part I think that it's a shame if more people don't figure this out, especially those people who are fortunate enough. Just think about the people who are fortunate enough to go scuba diving. You've got the time, you've got the money, you've got the freedom, you've got the safety, you've got the education, you've got all of that. You are the 0.0000001% of all humanity has ever existed. If you don't take advantage of that and learn 
and then try to value what you've learned and pass it on to other people. Then what are you doing? You're wasting your time. And it doesn't matter if you're just a recreational diver who goes once a year and has fun in some nice place like a resort in the Maldives or whatever. You're still so fortunate that it would be a shame not to understand this. I mean, it doesn't mean you can't have fun and enjoy it and all that. You should, but you should also understand the context that, man, there are a lot of people who are never going to have this chance. And a lot of what you learn can be valuable because it actually applies to everything in life, how you deal with other people, how you deal with your family, how you deal with your friends, your coworkers, all of that stuff. It's the same thing. If people who are lucky enough, like, like, we are and, and other divers and people get into the water should take this away and make it part of their lives. Yeah, indeed. Everything you say, just, I so resonate down to the core. It's really my belief. And, and, and that I do see myself like transferring what I do for diving into my relationships with my family, friends, and everyone else, be it with a stranger or somebody I've known for a long time. I could carry on talking because it's so much that I want to hear from you. I really appreciate your time and sharing so much of your personal experiences and wisdom. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you, sir. Have a nice day. Keep okay, you too. Bye-bye. You have just been listening to Surface Time, Confessions of a Diving Junkie. My guest today was Tony Wu, the award-winning wildlife photographer. His captivating images have not only inspired many people, but also contributed significantly to the research scientists' community. In the follow-up episode, you will hear more from Tony answering the five insightful questions that I ask all my guests. Surface Time is executively produced by Noetic Production and Music by Dress Studio. If you have enjoyed our Surface Time chat, please show us some love and subscribe. And if you would like to share your stories on Surface Time, we would love to hear from you. Please email us to faith at surfacetimechats.com.